Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, the king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and your children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, the king, O king, I am yours and all that I have. And the messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. And then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble for he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and for my gold and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. And so he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my Lord the king, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. And when Ben-Hadad heard this message, he was drinking with the kings in the booth and he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. And then he said, who shall begin the battle? And he answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts and they reported to him, men are coming out of Samaria. And he said, if they've come for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. And so these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them and each struck down his own man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. And then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put the commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that we have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. 
And then we will fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. And the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the whole country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but not a God of the Syrians, or not a God of the valleys, Therefore, I will give you all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. And then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrian, of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest of them fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered into an inner chamber in the city. And his servant said to him, Behold now, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. And let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. And so they tied sackcloth around their waists, put ropes on their heads and went out to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please, let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go and bring him. And Ben-Hadad came out to him and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. And so he made a covenant with him. And let him go. And a certain man of the son of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. And then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. And so the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, your servant went out in the midst of the battle and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall have to pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You have, you yourself have decided it. And then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man who I had devoted to destruction. Therefore, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and, and sullen and came to Samaria. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have written your word to us. We give you thanks, O oh Father, that you have sent your spirit. We pray, Father, that the spirit would give us insight and understanding uh, as we study your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. While we went home to Georgia for uh, Christmas, Christmas break, I had the opportunity to go down uh, the, the river there. We live, my, my parents live uh, approximately one mile away from the river, the way the crow flies. And it's been several years since I've had an opportunity to go. Um, and so I got my dad's boat and I went and I put in at the boat ramp and I went down river. And as a kid, I had been there probably no less than, you know, 25, 50 times at least. But I was, as I was there alone, uh, began to, you know, a few years later, paying a little bit more attention to my surroundings. I noticed this really interesting thing. At one point in the river, it, it, it goes and, and then it curves really sharp and makes a big loop and then it comes back and it curves and almost touches uh, where it made that first big curve and then keeps on going. That's the way it used to run, at least. After several years of, of a, a rather large river, um, I think 13,000 cubic feet of water are, are output from that river uh, every second. So it's a rather large river. After years of the water kind of wearing and tearing on that, that curve, it finally just broke through. And it's quite mesmerizing. I mean, over the, over the course of time, over, over you know, tens or, or even hundreds of years, uh, the river just, just wore and wore and wore. And what, you know, what was a curve, eventually, you know, they're, they're kind of eventually formed a stream and then eventually formed what we call a slough. And then eventually that was the main course of the river. It just broke through the land altogether. And so now you can't even drive a boat where the river used to make the big loop unless the river's really, really high in flood stage. That's the thing about Water. It always follows the path of least resistance. Whether it's falling from the sky or whether it's running over your gutters instead of down your water spout, your gutter spout. Wherever it is, water always follows the path of least resistance. Some of us perhaps struggle with living life that way. With living life via the path of least resistance. For some of us, our our kind of philosophy of how to survive until Jesus comes back is really just to kind of go with the flow, to to sort of adapt and overcome, to be more reactive instead of proactive. You know, we're we're not that category of of the, the type A people. We're not super driven. We're not super duper go getters. We're, uh, we can kind of tend to be people pleasers sometimes. And that's okay to a certain degree. But, but the point at which, you know, that, that, that kind of changes categories from, you know, that's just kind of the way that God made me into the category of, of oh no, that sin is the point at which we tend to approach or we begin to approach obedience like that. When we begin to, to choose the easiest solution the easiest action or the easiest kind of fix to a situation without reference to its real or potential sinfulness, we change categories. From that category of that's kind of how God made me to the category of, oh no, that's sin. It's when we begin to kind of just always take the easy way out. The easy way out when it comes to telling the truth, the easy way out when it comes to being tempted with sin, or the easy way out when it comes to just how I fill my time, 
then we change categories. And the problem here is not necessarily that we don't know the difference between right and wrong. That's a problem, but that's not the problem here. The problem is that we know the difference between right and wrong. We're just not that committed to the one who determines what is right and wrong. The problem is, yes, that we know the Lord. We're just not that committed to him. We have no love to motivate our obedience. Really, what we have is a a love for self, and, and that's why we always choose what's easiest, because what's easiest is always what's best for me, we think. And that sort of philosophy of life, living life via path of least resistance, is I think what exemplifies Ahab, a man we've kind of grown to know loosely who's kind of more or less kind of been in the background of the story since Elijah came on the scene for the past five chapters. In chapter 16, we're told this man is really evil. He's the man who displeased the Lord more than any other person, any other king uh, up to this point. He's a man who, you know, when given this unfavorable prophecy by Elijah himself, right, speaking for the Lord, instead of Instead of directing his wrath really towards God, he directs it towards Elijah himself and chases him away. He's a man who in chapter 18, when he finds his messenger, Elijah, he immediately just submits to whatever Elijah wants to do. Elijah wants to host this prophet showdown. Ahab's like, all right, game on, let's do it. Then in chapter 19, he's a man who after witnessing 450 of his prophets killed and this miraculous event of the Lord himself breathing fire from heaven to consume an offering just kind of lets his wife deny the whole thing. He refuses to confront her severely irrational unbelief. And then fast forwarding one chapter into chapter 21, same story. Ahab's not running his life. His wife is. Ahab has been portrayed and and kind of is portrayed throughout these five, six chapters by the author of King as, as one who always chooses the path of least resistance. He's never really committed to anything. He's he's just kind of doing whatever is easiest before him. And when we open chapter 20, the story's not any different. In verse one, we're, we're kind of zoomed in to the setting. We're told that it's, it's wartime. Ben-Hadad, which is likely one of the most powerful kings on the face of the earth at this point in time, has set himself or set his sights on Israel, him and his 32 kings that are helping him. In verse two through four, Ben-Hadad demands that Ahab's silver and his gold and his best wives and his children are all his. Does Ahab stand up? Not the first time. Nope. All right, they're all yours. Ben-Hadad obviously thinks, well, that was pretty easy. Let me go back for a second time. Ben-Hadad says, no, 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 everything is mine. I'm going to take, I'm going to send my soldiers into, you, into Samaria tomorrow and everything that they see that they desire is yours. And at that point, he maybe says, okay, maybe we need to rethink this. Let me call the elders uh, and the people of Israel and see what they think. Again, with their opinion, right, with their advice, he finally does say no. 
In verse eight, he asked them, or verse seven, he asked them, what do you guys think? Verse eight, they says, do not listen or consent. And so in verse nine and follows, with their approval, he finally stands up to Ben-Hadad. He's a man who only kind of stands up to the opposition or stands up to the problem when he's got the backing of the people that are immediately in front of him. But as the narrative kind of moves on, we realize, and it's it's common sense, that telling Ben-Hadad and these 32 kings that, that have their sights set on Israel, telling them no could only mean one thing. It can only mean that they better, that Israel better buckle up. It can only mean that that, that that the bug is about to get a really good look at the windshield because war is about to commence, right? A war that, that Israel, in all reality, has no hopes of winning. Kind of fast forward to, to, to the word of God himself, his words in verse 13. Even the Lord, he comments, have you seen this great multitude? Do you realize the situation that you are in? you realize how many people they have and how many people you don't have? Israel is destined for destruction. Ahab is destined for destruction. Until the Lord intervenes. And the, the, God's intervention, his gracious intervention is what takes up the, 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 the most of the narrative from this point forward. God appears to Ahab in verses 13 through 15 and gives him direct instruction and, and kind of even answers his common sense questions, kind of, kind of pushing him and telling him, go on, go, go get started. Who's going to start the war? You are. Go, go get started. You're going to win. I'm going to give these people into your hand. In verses 16 to 18, the Lord is obviously working something in Ben-Hadad and his kings when, when they show up to like fight with most of them drunk. And in verses 19 to 21, the Lord shows up in, a, in, an, in his unmistakable power on behalf of his people. What we see is that, that the Lord himself is being gracious to a man whose life motto is, I'm choosing what is, whatever's easiest before me. I'm living via path of least resistance. How does God show his grace to that man? Well, again, he shows his grace in an an unmerited fashion. Look at where the Lord shows up to Ahab. This man deserved absolutely nothing from the Lord, yet the Lord came to him primarily so that he could teach him that, that, that Yahweh is Lord, I am the Lord. And this is especially interesting and and, and, and kind of just boggles our mind in light of the fact that, that Ahab, or Ahab has been committed to idolatry since we've known him. And not only his gross commitment to idolatry, but his leading all of Israel into idolatry. This is a man who in chapter 16, verse 32, the author says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Whatever grace Ahab receives is completely unmerited. But God also dispenses his grace in an unrestrained fashion. 
After winning the, the, the first kind of skirmish, the first battle, the prophet comes to Ahab and he says, don't, don't rejoice in your victory too quick because they're coming back in a few months. They're coming back in the spring. And they do. The soldiers of Ben-Hadah believe, their, their kind of theology is that, that God only won the battle because they were fighting in the hills. In other words, God's not the God of the valleys. He's the God of the hills. That's why we lost. Well, that and because our kings were drunk. And it's, it's interesting that, that since the man of God or another prophet comes to Ahab again in verse 28, it's pretty safe to say that Ahab probably kind of still believed the same thing. In other words, by the first instance, he's not completely convinced that the Lord is God. But nevertheless, God moves in his power and he demonstrates his power by overwhelmingly Bad odds on the part of Israel. It was 7,000 to 127,000. To kind of put those odds into concrete terms, that means every soldier of Israel would have to kill 18 other soldiers in order to win, in effort to win, and not lose anybody. But God God himself shows, God shows himself to be God, unrestrained by any geography. And God shows himself committed to his people even when his people aren't all that committed to him. The Lord shows himself as gracious to Ahab, a man committed to life by path of least resistance, an evil man, an unbelieving man. The Lord is gracious to those who are committed to living a life, a Christian life even, by path of least resistance. This is the character of God. Unmerited and unrestrained grace is what God is about. Unmerited and unrestrained grace characterizes Christ's love for us in the gospel. But the reason that that perhaps we maybe aren't feeling the weight of that to the degree that we perhaps should is because we're not really all that convinced that life by path of least resistance is really all that bad of a thing. We're not really convinced that it's sinful or there's, there's really anything wrong with it. And perhaps you're right, but I don't think you are. Because if we kind of just trace our sin to its logical end, we can see that, that maybe living life with that philosophy is not the greatest idea. The Christian life in that philosophy is not, is not a great idea. You know, every, everything is sort of fine and dandy until one little white lie leads to another uh, white lie, which leads to another, which leads to another, until you get into a position where you're not really sure what lies you've told, and so you're not really sure which lie to tell next. When the truth costs, when the truth kind of hurts, many of us run to that strategy. Or maybe we think perhaps, you know, that everything is fine and dandy until giving into one temptation leads to giving into another temptation, which leads to giving into another temptation until, you know, we're three to five years in or 10 years in and we're yoked to some idol 
that we can't say no to and, and, and it has our heart. You know, everything is fine and dandy until, you know, doing nothing with all of our time, you know, or, or working to do nothing with our time a couple days a week turns into three days a week until it turns into six days a week until it turns into the fact that, you know, we've got no money to support our family and there's no food and there's no house and there's no nothing. You know, the, 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 the writer of Proverbs says in, verse, in chapter 24, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber. And won't like an armed man. Life via path of least resistance, whether it's lying or whether it's giving in to our temptations without a fight or whether it's idleness. Life via path of least resistance, Christian life via path of least resistance is destructive. When we call it what, it what it really is, which is idolatry of self or whether it's, you know, or we can call it, you know, always doing what's easiest, then we can kind of begin to see the danger that lies within. Or we can maybe call it the Christian life without a spiritual backbone, with the love of Christ being the backbone. And with no backbone, there's no real obedience that is the danger. That needs grace. That needs the unmerited and unrestrained grace. A grace that is not deserved. A grace uh, that is not bridled. A grace that I, that I haven't earned and a grace that, that I can't hinder. That's what's needed. And that's what's ours in Christ. When I was growing up as a teenager, uh, one of my responsibilities kind of shifted after I could drive, and that was that most of the time it was my duty to, to take the trash to the dump. Um, that was one of my responsibilities, and I lived out in the country, and so there were no rolling trash cans that you rolled to the street for a garbage, for a garbage truck to come pick up. And you took your bag of trash, you threw it in the back of the truck, and you took it to the dump. And it was always just really the, the nastiest place on the face of the earth. There was always trash overflowing the can. There was trash uh, outside the dumpster. There was trash in the dirt. There was trash all around, but there was trash everywhere. It was just a nasty place. And again, that was back when they actually called them dumpsters. Now they're called convenience centers. Now you, you, know, you have to sort your trash and, and the parking lot is gravel and it's not dirt and there's a, tr there's a fence around it to keep the trash from blowing away and there's an attendant there to make sure that no trash is put on the ground. It's nice and it's neat and it's America where we take these really ugly things and sanitize them and make them still ugly but kind of clothed in, in beauty. Some of us perhaps maybe woke up two, two weeks ago on January the 1st with a desire to have our lives look less like a dumpster and more like a convenience center. The trash is still there, but we would just like it to be a little bit more organized and a little bit more put together. Right? We, want, we want to kind of have our lives uh, reformed. We, we, we realize that, that they're a mess and, and we want them to be better. 
It's a good desire, but perhaps maybe we haven't put a lot of thought into, into kind of what got it looking that way in the first place. Except, you know, the fact that we know it was some sort of sin, whether it was sin by me or sin at me or sin around me, some sort of sin just ruined my life. But could it be that the reason they were like that in the first place or maybe are like that in the first place is because we've been either intentionally or unintentionally living life via path of least resistance. We've been doing what's easiest. We've been committed to obedience when it's easy. We've been committed to the right thing when it's easy. We've been committed to loving the Lord when it's easy. And now we realize that the path of least resistance and the path of obedience are rarely, they rarely align with each other. If that's your Christian life, and if that's my Christian life, and I suspect that it's kind of all of ours in some sense or some area, one or the other, And God's unmerited and unrestrained grace has your name on it. Christ's life and his death and his resurrection has implications not just theoretically for sin, but for actual sin. God's grace is unrestrained for all those in Christ. The Spirit is willing. And there is hope because of the grace of God. The Lord is gracious to those on the path of least resistance. His grace to forgive, but also his grace to change, to transform. The Lord's grace to those on the path of least resistance is meant to cause change. It's meant to lead to obedience. Change transformation, obedience was was the goal, it was the end, it was the telos of God's unmerited and unrestrained gracious intervention in Ahab's life, but more generally also Israel's life. We can see in verse 13 that God, when he comes to Ahab and the prophet, what was the reason he was intervening? Well, it was so that uh, he would give the army into the Ahab's hand that day, but the main reason was that you shall know that I am the Lord. That was God's reason. Same thing in verse 28, and a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give you all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. What's the Lord's primary purpose in intervening? Well, it was so that Ahab would know that Yahweh, that that God is the Lord. The Lord intervened so so that Ahab would change his beliefs, but not just change his beliefs, but change his life, change who we who he was allegiant to. The Lord intervened so that Ahab would change. 
so that he would stop living to please his wife and so that he would stop living to please whatever king was knocking at his doors, that he would stop living to please himself, but lead so that he would actually live to please the Lord God Almighty and actually be a beneficial king for the people of Israel. But unfortunately, that's not the story that we get. We get a story about God upholding his end of the deal both times in verses 13 to 25, but also again in verses 28 to 30. God gets the victory for his people, no problem whatsoever. But Ahab doesn't uphold his end. In the second instance, Ben-Hadad actually escapes the battle and he and himself, he and his, his, his friends find themselves uh, huddled, huddled into some inner chamber in the city and they come up with a plan. We know that the kings of Israel are merciful, so let's exploit that mercy. Let's act like we're sad. Let's act like we're grieving and that we're sorry and maybe they will let us live. And that's exactly what happens. Ben-Hadad's men come talk to Ahab. He suddenly recognizes Ben-Hadad as his brother when an hour ago it was his objective to kill him. All it takes for Ben-Hadad to change status from, from Ahab's enemy to his brother is really just some begging and some sad costumes. All it really takes for Ahab to give Ben-Hadad his life instead of taking it is the giving back of a few cities and, you know, the hosting of a few businesses in Ben-Hadad's country. Power. That's all it takes. Here again, we see it. Living life by path of least resistance. It was easier for Ahab to accept an apology to buy into this sort of deceptive sorrow, to this little play, to receive a few lost cities and to gain a little bit more power than it was to execute the Lord's will. It was better for Ahab to have the cities and to have the power than to trust the Lord to give him both. That's living life, the Christian life by path of least resistance. God's grace, his kindness, was meant to lead to repentance. But instead of killing Ben-Hadad, who was devoted to the Lord, which means he was devoted to destruction, he made him his brother. Instead of becoming faithful in his covenant with God, Ahab forms a covenant with a pagan king who was again trying to kill him just a few hours earlier. Instead of believing the Lord is God, Ahab continues to be his own God. Which begs the question, has, what has been our response to God's grace at work in our lives? Has the dying of Christ on a tree for my sins caused me to hate them? Has the perfect obedience of Christ on my behalf energized my own obedience? 
has God's commitment to me by sacrificing his own son on the cross yielded any sort of commitment on my behalf? A commitment that surpasses just doing what's right when it's easy. Or has our response been a bit more tempered? Do we only obey when it's easy? Do we only love whoever's in front of us or who's in the mirror? The only suitable response to the unmatched and unmerited and unrestrained grace of the God Almighty is one that's wholehearted, one that doesn't share love, one that doesn't share obedience. It's change. Right? Again, change from telling lies because they're easy to telling the truth, even though it's hard and even though it might come at a cost. A change from giving in to temptation to sin just to make it go away, to hating it and to fighting it, to being committed to Christ. A change from a life organized around having nothing to do and creating the vacuum for sin and to exist to working hard for the Lord. A change from avoiding hard things because they're hard to doing what the Lord commands because they are what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Grace changes things. The Lord's grace to those on the path of least resistance is meant to bring about obedience. In Ahab's case, it was meant to bring about obedience uh, in leading the people of Israel by walking righteously according to God's law. And the consequences for continuing in that sort of land of non-committal that land of, of the path of least resistance, a, a spineless Christianity, however you want to term it, is destruction. And that's what we see in verses 35 to 43, which kind of seem to be sort of weird on the face of it. But what it really is, it's, it's, it's a story illustrating the, the, the importance of wholehearted, careful obedience to God and his word. It proves that disobedience leads to death when the prophet or the, the, the prophet's friend doesn't listen to what the Lord commands. It costs him his life. When Ahab judges that, that you know, in this, uh, in this fabricated story about the, about the prophet losing uh, the, the captive in the war, when, when Ahab judges that, you know, that should cost you your life. When Ahai himself left or let go a man that was devoted to destruction by the Lord, it's going to cost him his life. Christian life, living the Christian life by path of least resistance is one that leads to destruction. As we conclude, I think one of the... One of the things that kind of captures this entire chapter, what does it mean for us? What, what, what's the point? Well, I think it's that we ought to be more committed to the Lord Jesus than we are to ease. We, are, we ought to, to be more committed to the Lord Jesus, to obedience, than we are to ease. Because there will come a point in time, maybe it's in an hour, 
Maybe it's before sunrise or maybe it's before tomorrow's sunset when the path of least resistance and the path of obedience, what the Lord's called me to do, those two won't align. And so let me encourage you to let your love for the Lord Jesus Christ work itself out through spirit-wrought obedience. Let your commitment to Christ Jesus outlast and outlive and outchoose your commitment to the desires of the flesh. In other words, be a Christian with a backbone because God's grace has called you to be just that and will supply you to be just that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we know that it is a reality that we can have very strong opinions on some things and have very weak backs when it comes to our sin. And we thank you for Christ. And we thank you for unmerited and unrestrained grace because we need both. Our lack of obedience, even as we were reminded this morning in Sunday school, our lack of obedience is proof that we need grace And so we ask for it. And we ask, O Lord, for forgiveness, but we also ask, O Lord, that you would supply the grace uh, for us to, to live blamelessly in your sight because of our love for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.